may have noticed that uh, America pumps out tons and tons of material on leadership. And the church in America has then followed suit. The material um, published by Christians, churches, publishing companies, you know, I think it's become more and more prevalent over the last 20 or 30 years with the rise of the mega church and her multiple campuses in multiple states and even multiple countries. With the church following the American cultural trend, the church has supersized and franchised itself, even with buy-in fees. So there are some churches, you know, if you want to be part of their church, you can pay a certain amount of money and then you become part of the, the conglomeration. It comes with legal contracts even, and sometimes even cease and desist clauses and letters being sent out to other churches saying, unfortunately, you know, if you use some of our stuff, then we are going to have to sue you. One of the effects of this is that the church now demands her leaders be more CEOs of conglomerations or creative vision casting entrepreneurs able to work outside the bounds of the traditional rather than being what God calls them to be. Christ-like men who eagerly, willingly take up the responsibility to bring spiritual oversight and shepherding to the body of Christ. You can tell where I stand in relation to the church following the American cultural trend. Uh, but here, by God's grace, we come back to our series. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 5. And we have a great, fantastic reminder today of what Christ expects uh, his under-shepherds to be. That is local church pastors what does god expect local church pastors to be and we're going to look about uh, from first peter chapter five we're going to look about uh, look at three things about the pastor number one the pastor's passion number two the pastor's purpose and then number three the pastor's pleasure so you have the pastor's passion purpose and pleasure and that's in the title right there so please turn with me if you haven't already to first peter chapter five verses one to four 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, found on page 1016 of your Bibles, if you're using one of those black Bibles right there in front of you. <clears throat> now, some of you guys are wondering, why in the world should I care about this? Why should I care about what the pastor ought to be? Well, friends, I want you to care about it. Uh, in fact, God wants you to care about it. It's why it's in His Word. It's why He's telling us here. Uh, if you are a regular member of the church, I want you to know what to expect in the church. I want you to know what to expect of me in the church and of anyone else that one day you might submit yourself to as uh, as a, a sheep in the flock. Right. This is for your own spiritual well-being. What does God expect of the pastor? <clears throat> and then how are you to interact with that? I also want you to care about it because it will help you know what to look for in a new church. Should God move you away from this body for whatever reason? Right. We need to know what exactly we're going to look for, who we ought to submit ourselves to as the Bible calls uh, church members to submit to their leaders. Um, you should also care because it'll help you know how to support your pastors, whether they be present or future, right? So what exactly are you to appreciate about your pastors, right? So if you know God's priorities for your pastors, you will then, I hope, help to guard those priorities, even in the things that you value. And these priorities will shape your expectations, right? They're going to help you know how to pray for me, or whoever might serve here one day as an elder. It's going to help you know what to expect, uh, what you should expect a pastor to give his time to. It's going to help you know what to encourage in your pastor, or what to value in your pastor. Um, and then it, it, maybe you're here and you are thinking about what it means to become a pastor. Perhaps you're exploring your call to the ministry, wondering, you know, should I be going to the ministry or not? You have another opportunity to think about what God requires of you, and then also what to pray and work towards as you labor towards that end. And then, of course, if you're visiting with us as a non-Christian, I hope you're able to gain clarity as to what the pastor actually does. So, I mean, in the last few conversations that I've had with non-Christians, and I tell them I'm a pastor, I can't help but think that what goes through their mind is preachers of Los Angeles, you know, the, the television reality show where there were prosperity gospel preachers, which we do not teach here, um, who are out to get rich, who see the sheep as people to prey upon, people to use, people to feed on, as opposed to people that they are to give themselves for and expend themselves for. You know, so the question is, you know, do we talk, our pastors, do they talk about uh, taking money all the time? They're talking about the offering all the time. 
uh, you know, friends, it's just helpful to know that there are fake pastors. There are pretend pastors. But our passage here today tells us what God himself requires of pastors, right? There is a standard. Who are these people that are supposed to lead the church? And so our passage, I hope you're able to see that our passage is really applicable to all of us as we sit here today on this very Sunday. So if you're there already, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 to 4, chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. This letter was written by Peter the Apostle, one of the original disciples of Jesus. And this is what he says to the church scattered throughout modern-day Turkey. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. If you've been with us, you know that we were walking through this book written in the early 60s AD. And Peter is writing to a church or many different churches that were going through some degree of persecution. Uh, And here with these verses, he actually turns, he transitions to the conclusion of the letter. He's winding it down to a close. We only have one more week and... Next week, we're going to look at verses 6 to the end, Lord willing. Um, But in the most recent verses, so if you kind of scan the verses right above it, let's say from 5, sorry, from 4.12 to 4.19, Peter was talking, he was addressing Christians as they were interacting with those outside of the church, with those who persecute them. Uh, And he's he's offering them hope. You know, he's, he's helping them, look in verse 12, he's helping them know how to go through this fiery trial when it comes upon you. As they are being as they are suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. And he wants them to suffer well as a Christian, to boast, to continue glory in the name, to boast in the name, to exalt in the name of Jesus. They are going through fiery trials. If you turn over to chapter one, we can go through a brief review of what's going on in the context. He says there in one six, in this you rejoice, that is the hope of the gospel, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by, by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you go to 220, here's another example. It says, what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So most likely some Christians are being beaten for their faith. And then you can turn over to 4.4, 4, chapter 4, verse 4. Uh, with respect to this, they are surprised. Non-Christians are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So they're being slandered. Non-Christians are speaking poorly of Christians. And some of you guys might be going through this. Let's say you were once living so thoroughly in the non-Christian world. You become a Christian and then you kind of separate yourself in certain aspects. Let's say you don't want to fall into the same sins that you used to. And so your old friends are now launching attacks at you they're criticizing you saying that you are no longer uh, a family member no longer loyal etc so this is some of the uh, suffering that was going on but nevertheless the christians are supposed to rejoice in the midst of suffering in our verses today peter turns to address life within the suffering church address life within the suffering church and he speaks specifically to pastors and teachers in the church We're going to talk more about the office of the pastor. But I think it's appropriate to start with the end of the passage, actually, for the first point. And here we have point number one, the pastor's passion, the pastor's passion. Uh, There in verse four, we jump right into the controlling, driving passion for anyone who is to lead in the church. And this is kind of like the climactic uh, area that he rests the church on these pastors on look at verse four uh, of chapter five he says and when and when the chief shepherd appears so there he's setting their eyes he's setting the pastor's eyes towards this chief shepherd's appearance you will receive the unfading crown of glory so let's just talk about the structure of the passage we want to understand what's going on here verse number one if you just scan that he talks about the what He says what the pastor is to do. He says, shepherd the flock of God. Take care of the flock of God. Take care of the church. Verses two and three, he then talks about how they are to shepherd. We're going to look at that later. And then verse four, he rests their hearts here on the hope. 
This is what we're aiming towards. This is what we long for. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is a, a, a theme that Peter returns to again and again in the book of First Peter. He's brought it up a number of times in chapter 1, verses 7 and 13. He talks about the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's talk about the second coming of Christ. Christ, after he died, the Bible says very clearly, he died, he was buried for three days, he rose from the dead, and then he ascended into heaven again. And then Christ is going to return. It's the second coming of Jesus. So Peter has this in his mind here. He says the revelation of Jesus in 2.12 is called the day of visitation. And at the day of visitation, Christ will return and, and establish his kingdom in its entirety, where his righteous rule will be made known. And then hope and final salvation will be brought to bear. This is the hope that Peter's pointing us to. Look again for review. Look there in uh, chapter 1, verse 3. You know, he holds out this future hope that is going to come. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is future, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for that day, the salvation that will come, ready to be revealed in the last time. So for the pastor, he says, it's important to, to recognize, crucial to understand that the pastor's purpose, which is shepherd the flock of God, we need to understand that in light of the passion. In light of the return of Jesus Christ, we've got to ask, well, what's the driving, underlining desire behind the pastor's desire to, to, to preach the gospel? Here it is the glories of Jesus Christ. This is the controlling passion of the pastor, the glories of Christ. When that chief shepherd appears, we will receive the blessings that he brings. So here Peter sets the pastor looking towards the person of Jesus, being reminded of his work, in relation to the hope of his return. So the what, let's think about the structure. The what of the pastor, he's to shepherd. The how, he does it with pleasure. We're going to talk about that later. And the why, it is when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You know, friends, if you've ever thought about uh, going into the ministry, this should shape the way that we consider our calling. I know many of you guys are exploring this type of thing. You know, unfortunately... I think many people who start to consider the ministry start with the me mentality, the me mentality, like they would any other kind of career. What brings me personal fulfillment? Or given the kind of life that I particularly desire, what kind of career is best suitable for me? Now, I'm not always saying that's, that thinking about uh, yourself in relation to your job and career is bad. Certainly, that's important. Uh, you know, you got to feed your family, and therefore you might want to pursue certain careers that pay a certain amount of money. Here, when I talk about the me mentality, I'm talking about the me mentality that's driven by my own selfish desires as if I am the center of my universe. But Christ's pastors, those, that is the pastors that Christ installs over his churches, they can't, they're not supposed to live with the me mentality. They live with the he mentality. As it says there, when the chief shepherd appears... While the me mentality has me at the center, my desires, my purposes, the he mentality has Christ at the center, the son of the universe, the son of the galaxy. And this is Peter's worldview. So if you know that you're thinking like, gosh, you know what? I actually do stop from the bottom as in what I want to do. And then I kind of work outwards. You know, we can look to Peter. Actually, he's a fantastic uh, example. He started off with a me mentality. If you were to read the gospel accounts, Peter was a guy who struggled to get who Jesus actually was and what he was teaching. He had Peter had his own plans, his own expectations for Christ. Imagine that and his kingdom, as do many pastors and churches. But after realizing that Christ is God, the son come in the flesh, that it was the sovereign one who stood right before him, who has power over the created universe, who speaks with authority he has never seen before, who calms the storm, has power once again over the uh, over the, all the living things as he's causing fish to come into the boat if you guys remember that story he has the authority to forgive sins and he is the chosen one that was to die on the cross for sins and then rise from the grave three days later he realizes that this is christ the lord and so he embraces then a he mentality you are the lord the christ and so christ becomes a center of his life 
And, and, and friends, this is not surprising, is it? I mean, anyone who realizes that there is a creator, that the creator has made people to be in relationship with him, that we therefore are the dependent beings and he is the independent beings, well, that's going to shape your expectations, isn't it? That's going to shape the way that you look at life. It's going to shape what you, bring, what you give your life to. And so it did with Peter. But Peter's not only a model for pastors. He's actually a model for, our, for all Christians in terms of moving away from the me mentality and then adopting the he mentality. And if Christians are to have the he mentality, so much more their leaders, so much more their leaders, those who guide, those who lead Christ's sheep, are to have Christ's person, his work on the cross, and the reward he brings with him at his return as central to our lives. Without a passion and love for Christ, the Christian life, you guys, or the life of the pastor, uh, we're going to abandon the post that he gives us. If he calls Christians to stand ready, but we have no passion for Christ, well, at the end of the day, who really cares? You're not going to care, I guarantee you that. If a pastor goes into the ministry without a passion and love for Jesus, and he's called to stand at his post, feeding Christ's sheep, Christ's word, the pastor is going to abandon it. It's interesting, in, in Scripture, the pastor is called a steward of the things of God, namely the word of God, the sheep of God, and even the gifts given by Jesus Christ. Uh, and we are called, pastors are called servants in the house of God. So obviously no love for the, if there is no love for the master, well, the servant's going to abandon his post. Throw out the directions, right? You're going to live according to your own will. But where there is a love for the master, the pastor will stand faithfully at his post. And then for serving Christ becomes a delight. Persevering in the task becomes possible even amidst challenges. This is obvious even in, let's say, you're thinking about, finding yourself a babysitter. Do you want a babysitter who's going to listen to your words or a babysitter who's going to toss out your instructions? It's very clear. Uh, you want to find some, a caretaker for your children uh, who actually cares about you because if they don't, then they're going to rely on their own will, their own knowledge and their own wisdom and they're going to neglect all of your knowledge that you have about your children. In relation to persevering in the task... Uh, challenges were on Peter's mind. You know, it's, it's a letter about suffering here. And um, you see that in verse 4, you know, what is held out to the pastor who perseveres? It is the unfading crown of glory. So just imagine this, the suffering pastor here. What is held out in front of him is this unfading crown of glory. In that time, athletes or a victor in, in let's say, a battle, if, if, if an athlete was to win his particular challenge or his race or whatever, or the victor was to come home from battle... They would be crowned with like a leafy crown, a flowery crown, right? But of course that fades. Uh, you, maybe you can think of, you know, a celebration. You know, maybe you get married and you hang your bouquet upside down. Well, that thing's going to fade. The thing's going to fall apart eventually. Uh, but here Peter contrasts an earthly reward for those who endure with the eternal reward for those who endure in Jesus Christ. It's Christ's glory. It's the crown of Christ's glory that never fades, and wrapped up in that is receiving this crown of Christ's glory, his honor. And so, therefore, all honor goes to Jesus Christ as the pastor is satisfied. <clears throat> I love this sands of time are sinking. You know, this, this new song that we sung here. If you look there, it's found in your bulletin. Go ahead and turn there. It's the uh, third song here. You know, we might say, gosh, you know, the pastor, all he's going to do is gaze at this wonderful crown that he receives. Well, what is this crown? Right there, the last, the last verse there says, The bride eyes, not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. That is, the church gazes the bridegroom's face, Jesus' face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. So when it talks about receiving this unfading crown of glory... He's talking about salvation, the benefits of salvation. But who is the one who's granting salvation? It is the Lamb of God, the slain Lamb. And that is who ultimately the pastor's eyes are fixed on as they go about shepherding. Now, again, for those of you who are exploring the call to ministry, you know, for the pastor, this eternal hope must inform the temporal task in more of a unique way than the average Christian more of a unique way than the average Christian, mainly because there is an additional burden for the church. 
we go through, pastors go through unique challenges. So in this context, right, pastors, he's speaking about pastors who are suffering, I think, on behalf of their congregations. Pastors have always experienced more blame and accusation for the actions of their sheep. In many ways, some cultures that we come from, uh, come from cultures like these that Peter was writing to, where communities were represented by their leaders. Communities represented by their leaders. So imagine the non-Christian world, non-Christian family, your family members. Well, let's say you, you go back home and you say, actually, you know what, Dad and Mom, I have not been baptized, even though you may, might have dunked me when I was two years old. I did not believe. And then you say, well, I'm learning about this stuff in the Bible, and this is what my pastor's teaching. They're not only going to think, like, you know, you are wrong, but they're also going to think, who's this pastor teaching you this stuff? Uh, this, is, this is very common. And think about the non-Christian world, right? If, you're, if your 18-year-old son is now becoming a Christian who used to be a Muslim, well, the parents are going to not only blame the child, they're going to blame the pastor. And I experienced this growing up. You know, I had friends who, I had one family friend who was, uh, uh, who, whose family were Zoroastrians. He was from Iran. And, um, and he professed to be a Christian. And so his life was kind of changing and it caused some cultural upheaval at, at the home. And so one day I just turned up, you know, I went to go pick him up and his, who met me at the door was his mom. And his mom just, just laid into me, you know, saying some pretty nasty things about me as a Christian as I was causing this turmoil in the home. And I was just there to, to pick him up and to, to go hang out. You know, I wasn't causing any of the turmoil, but yet she was laying some of the blame on me. I mean, some of you guys might know this types of interaction where you are being blamed for the actions of your, your you know, the Christians around you. Well, so much more does the pastor bear these types of burdens as they experience suffering on behalf of their sheep. Those are, those are external challenges to, let's say, persecution. But there's also internal challenges that bring up a certain degree of suffering where the crown of glory needs to be held out in front of the pastor. So here we're just thinking pastors in general. What, what are the types of sufferings that the pastor goes through that you yourself, if you're thinking about the ministry, um, may in the future go through and this just comes from basic leadership stuff you know if if you were to read books on pastoring you're going to find these particular issues coming up over and over again uh so you know i hope this helps inform you i hope it helps you know how to pray for me and then other leaders i hope it helps you uh know how to bear with leaders but so what are some of the challenges that that might bring up some degree of inner turmoil here? Leaders are faced with their own sin in a, in a unique way where we need Jesus, the chief shepherd in front of us. Otherwise, we're going to give up the post. Leaders are faced with their own sin in a unique way. Uh, so uh, in the course of meaningful relationships, just think of boyfriend, girlfriend, stuff at home, coworkers in a situation where you actually have to know one another. Uh, your interactions are going to reveal your sin, aren't they? So when you enter into a relationship, right, that person is like a mirror reflecting your own sin. Now imagine the responsibility of shepherding everybody here where it's called, uh, demanded by Jesus that there would be interactions with everybody here to some degree. All of a sudden, right, aren't, isn't the pastor faced with their own sin, their own failures? Yes, they are. Another one, leaders struggle because uh, many want to please everyone, but they can't. Uh, in God's kindness, you know, oftentimes many pastors, you know, they want to love other people. But, uh, you know, just based on human capacity, let's even lay aside sinfulness, just human capacity. You can't please everybody. Uh, right? so, so it means that the pastor must, must let people down. And for many, oftentimes what follows in the hearts of the pastor is that there's a lot of inner turmoil. You feel like a personal failure because somebody is let down in church. People have, ex just think about all the expectations that everybody has that comes into the church. You're, you come into the church with certain expectations, and your expectations are formed by baggage in the past uh, or good things in the past. And so when you come into the church, you automatically have uh, expectations upon the pastor. Some pastors, they wrestle with the truth that they have to let people down. Not only because the pastor is a sinner, that's guaranteed, going to let you guys down, but also because of understandable reasons, because of capacity reasons. You know, there's pastors who have different personalities, you know, so you think of two prominent pastors that uh, uh, you take, uh, you know, one of my mentors, Mark Dever. 
he works, he invites people up to his study. So while he's typing out a sermon, he's have, he has multiple people in his study. And then you can think of someone like, let's say, John Piper, whose sermon, who works on his sermon uh, in a room that's farthest away from the front door so that nobody, absolutely nobody, uh, I- I- interrupts him. Right? You just have different personalities who are going about the same task of preaching the gospel and shepherding people. Um, so it's just a reality that there are people who come in, to, everybody comes in the church with expectation. The pastor just ha- simply has to let some down. Another one, leaders struggle because they are misunderstood. Leaders struggle because they are misunderstood. Um, now, this actually applies to all leaders. So if you are a supervisor at your work, you probably know what this is like. If you have any desire to shepherd people, like have a family at home, or have children at home, this applies to you. Just as a parent has to be ready for their children to misunderstand the parent's intentions, so the pastor does too. The pastor has to be okay with, with, uh, with folks misunderstanding them, and maybe not just for days, but maybe weeks, maybe even months, and frankly, maybe even years. Frankly, maybe even for their whole entire lifetimes. Um, now, of course, this is, this is an area where leaders struggle, right? Because oftentimes leaders want to see people loved. And uh, what that also means is they probably also struggle big time, many, some do, with the fear of man, a desire to please uh, which needs to be checked by the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to find our identity. So, friends, if you're wanting to go into a ministry, you can basically expect these types of things. Um, so you see why the pastor needs Christ to be his driving passion, right? Because without Christ, the pastor is done for. He will cave at the mere threat of persecution. Without the example of Christ and the strength that Christ provides for his under shepherds the strength of christ that undergirds and without that he's going to be crushed under the weight of persecution uh without the glories of jesus christ being in front of him his sin will be too overwhelming you see all the interactions all the possible opportunities for me to let people down or for me to 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 do uh to discourage folks just on accident or even just because i'm a sinner my sin is going to be too heavy for me to bear without christ's glory and his grace being my controlling passion Without Christ, who was fine, actually, to withdraw for a time, to say, no, I'm actually going to stop doing a certain type of ministry, to withdraw, uh, you know, the pastor will be crushed uh, without having his identity in Jesus Christ. If, I'm a, if any pastor is a slave to the church, he's going to be done for because the pastor is supposed to be a slave to Jesus Christ. We could just continue to go on, but thinking, if you are thinking about going into the ministry Friends, you need a he mentality, otherwise you will be done for. Christ is to be our controlling passion because Christ is our answer to all of our problems. We're going to talk about this more and more when we come to the how, but the glories of Jesus should inform everything that the pastor does. Otherwise, we're going to abandon our posts. So summary of point number one, given the pastor's controlling passion is to be Christ and his glories, uh, it then makes sense that the pastor's purpose... Now we're turning to point number two. The pastor's purpose is to care for Christ's sheep on Christ's behalf. Point number two, the pastor's purpose, caring for Christ's sheep on Christ's behalf. You see that there in verse number one, he says there, shepherd the flock of God. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that it's going to be revealed. Verse number two, shepherd the flock of Christ. I'm pretty encouraged when I see this uh, passage. Because I have Peter here as a fellow elder writing to me as an elder, right? That says they're fellow elder. The word elder is interchangeable with the word pastor. Later on, he's going to say there, uh, he's going to speak of the pastor as an overseer. Um, And there, the word overseer, oversight, look there in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So we have there an elder is a shepherd is an overseer. Those are three different terms used for the one office. But I am encouraged as I see Peter here as a fellow elder writing to me as an elder. Because this is Peter, right? He knows the situation here. He knows what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said that he will build his church on Peter and the other apostles and his profession, right? The profession is the rock that Jesus says on this church, on this rock, I will build my church. That's the profession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, But here I have the Apostle Peter coming alongside of me as a fellow elder, identifying with the sufferings and the glories 
that are found in Jesus Christ. He says there he is a witness of the sufferings of Jesus Christ, right? He was at the crucifixion and he was a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. In the earlier verses, we were talking about how the glory of God rests upon the Christian and that therefore helps us endure uh, the suffering. Here, that's part of this partaking of the glory that he is talking about. The Spirit has brought the end times glory, the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ, an eternal salvation, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And that's the glory, part of the glory that he's already tasted and the glory that he trusts in. Peter was at the crucifixion. He caved at the, at the pressure of persecution when the little girl called him out. He knew suffering. He knew sin. But he also knew restoration. And he was reinstated to the ministry. He wasn't, he wasn't crushed by his sin as he rejected Jesus, right? That's a pretty big deal. But instead, Christ reinstated him and he embraced that call. So Peter says, shepherd the flock of God. This is an obvious uh, explanation of what the elder is to do. Shepherd, he's supposed to care, he's supposed to pastor uh, the church. He's a man controlled by the glories of God in Christ. And so he's to shepherd God's flock. Another word, obviously, is oversight. So exercising spiritual oversight in Acts chapter six, verses one to six, you see there that spiritual oversight is connected to preaching the gospel and prayer. Actually, let's go ahead and turn there. Acts chapter six. If you're sitting next to somebody who's not familiar with the Bible, definitely help them get there. We are a church that bases our life on the word of God. So we're taking everything from here. And in this context here, the church is growing rapidly in number by God's grace. And there's a need in the congregation. So there's potential division. And you look there, what happens in chapter six, verse two, the disciples say, and the 12, it says that the 12 summon the full number of the disciples, that is all the church, and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That is, take care of this administrative task. He tells them, therefore, brothers, the whole entire church, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And what does he say there? Uh, We're going to appoint them to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So here you have the forerunners of all pastors that would ever serve in the church of Jesus Christ. They are dedicating, they are to dedicate themselves to the teaching of God's word, spiritual oversight and to prayer or spiritual oversight, namely preaching of the word and prayer preaching of the word and prayer but in relation to this language of shepherd this new testament language is steeped in old testament language old testament categories so you think of moses for example when god called moses to lead his people out of israel what was he doing he was actually shepherding jethro's flock you think of king david before he was called to uh before before he went to let's say battle against goliath What was he doing? He was shepherding the flock. But of course, the model for all of these pastors, all of these people who care for God's people is God himself. So AJ read from us from Isaiah chapter 40 there. There's a reason why we chose that passage because God himself is is the shepherd of his flock. He leads his sheep. You can think of Psalm 23, for example, where God is guiding us with his rod and his staff, loving us. And you see there what Christ is called in our passage there. Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 5. What is Christ called? In verse 4, it says, when the chief shepherd appears, Christ is our chief shepherd, which means that every local church pastor is an under shepherd of Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd. And here in relation to what Peter is writing to pastors, uh, we can think back to Christ's call upon his own life, which is recorded in John chapter 21. You can look there later. But in that conversation, Jesus sort of tenderly reinstates Peter to the ministry after he had sinned three times jesus calls peter to shepherd my flock and this is what he says he says tend my or feed my lambs he says tend my sheep he says feed my sheep and jesus makes it clear that peter is to have christ controlling his passions even and that's evidenced by what jesus asks before he charges him every single time those three instances you know when he asks peter he says peter do you love me So the priority is love for Christ before feeding his sheep. Love for Christ is a prerequisite to feeding Christians. Before Christ calls a man to feed his sheep, he wants to know if the man will love him. 
The primary way a pastor is to shepherd. Once again, we talked about feeding the sheep. How is he to feed the sheep here? It's through actually God's word. Anything less than feeding the church God's word would be putting the church on an unhealthy diet that actually works to bring detriment to the sheep. And God is very clear as to what, this, what the appropriate food is for Christ's people. It's not, nothing less than his word. So think of the Great Commission. Matthew 28, Jesus tells his disciple, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then you have the book of Acts, right, where the church is formed, the spirit is poured out. You have fantastic examples of the apostles preaching Christ crucified. And in Acts chapter 20, he warns the elders of Ephesus, pay careful attention to the flock because people are going to come in and preach false things. He says, you protect them by teaching. You go further. Paul tells Timothy, a young church planter, son in the faith, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and in everything in teaching. 2 Timothy 4, 2. To Titus, another church planter, he says, the elder must hold firmly to a trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. That's in Titus 1, verse 9. And then even if you were to look at all the gifts passages, so Christ gives gifts to all of his children, even there, there is an emphasis on the speaking gifts. That is the speaking gifts where the church is built up. So friends, the pastor's ministry, again, if you're thinking about what to, what to look for in a pastor, maybe the Lord is calling you here or calling you to another church, you want to prioritize a preaching ministry, a preaching teaching ministry. That's what you should expect And the teaching of the word is to have central place among his people. The preaching of the word is to have a central place among his people. That means, friends, that the central place for shepherding the congregation is here on Sunday morning. That means that the central place for discipling people is here in the gathering on Sunday morning where the preaching of God's word goes out and the spirit goes alongside with it. I mean, we see this going on in Peter, right? He says, it's by the word of God that that God gave you the new birth. It is through the the word of God that God continues to sanctify. That's why you're supposed to, uh, after we have tasted that it's good, we're supposed to long for it all the more. This is why Paul makes it clear that elders and pastors must be able to teach. And that's what distinguishes them from deacons. They must be able to rightly handle the word of truth in 2 Timothy 2.15. Friends, without the preaching and teaching of the word of God at his gathered assembly, the church is not going to be built. The church will not grow up to maturity. Listen to this, Ephesians 4.11. And Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So friends, if there is no preaching of the word of God, that means the saints are not equipped for the work of the ministry. It's the teachers who are equipping. And for us, the pastors teach so that you all would be equipped in order to do the work of the ministry. So it's not just the pastor who's supposed to do all the shepherding uh, or the ministry work, as some call it, the work of the ministry, obviously. It's also the congregation here. But the pastor's job, according to uh, the New Testament here, is to be preaching the word, shepherding according to the word. Now, as we seek to apply this, um, those of you who are might be checking out the church, I hope you've noticed that we want to make sure that we are a church that values preaching over programs, preaching over programs. And so if you notice the life of the church, we're actually very program light. It's not that we don't have programs, right? We do. And, I, and I'd love for more, you know, sort of member run programs to spring up here. We just want to prioritize the weekly gathering where the word of God is preached and the ordinance of the Lord's Supper and, the bapti- and baptism are administered. That's the that's the marks of a true church. So, again, we have programs, right? We have small groups, and I encourage you guys all to go to them. I encourage the leaders who are leading them. They are good things for your benefit. Uh, But, hey, you know what? If you can't make a small group because it means that you would sit in traffic for an extra few hours and therefore skip out on your only time of family night, I don't particularly care if you don't go. I want you to come to the gathering of the church because that's where scripture lays its emphasis on. And I want you to have personal relationships so that you guys can be continuing to do the work of the ministry. If you need to skip a small group, go ahead. 
Uh, but the, the emphasis that we see here in scripture is on the weekly gathering. Hebrews ten twenty five it says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And there I do think he's talking about the formal assembly. He's not talking about small groups. You don't see small groups here in the Bible. You see churches gathering. That's where the emphasis is on. Now, some churches, friends, don't prioritize the gathering. Some churches do not prioritize the gathering. And so they say that, hey, if you go to a small group, or if you are involved in some sort of formal discipleship program, if you are involved, if you participate in some sort of formal ministry, it's not a big deal to miss a Sunday. But friends, you know what happens, though, with that uh, kind of philosophy, with that kind of teaching? I think it inadvertently works to prioritize programs over the preaching. Just imagine what would happen when a Christian were to, is to leave the persons leave their church, his or her church, for whatever reason, to find a new one with that mentality. I mean, what are they going to look for? What are they going to prioritize if nothing has been prioritized apart from their own personal desire for personal fulfillment? Isn't their litmus test going to be something other than the preached word? Do they have what is suitable to me? Small group on a particular night, a specific discipleship program that it's easy for me to fit into my preferred schedule. Certain structures of small groups, not just, you know, gatherings together, but here a certain method of doing a small group. Uh, I've talked to people who have come to church with, with uh, let's say, this type of mentality. They expect a certain method of small group to take place. And if the method isn't there, then they're going to take off. Uh, I've, had, I've talked to people who, who, who have a really strong emphasis on uh, pushing a specific Bible program. And so they're saying, do you have this Bible reading program? And they elevate that over the regular preaching of the word and all the other commands of scripture. And so they say, okay, well, this encouraged by the preaching. I'm encouraged by the singing, even if we're singing very merely and singing some really old hymns that frankly are kind of hard to sing. But you know what? I'm encouraged by these things. I recognize that, that some form of discipleship is going on, that pastoral care is, is going on right now. But you don't have this one particular thing. Actually, in this particular thing is not specifically stated in the Bible, and we're going to leave because of that. Um, you see here that uh, for those, if nothing is prioritized, then really people end up, uh, frankly, having a lot of trouble settling at the right church. But friends, we want to prioritize the preached word, and I think, friends, that this creates happy and helpful Christians who are able to locate where the preached word is and then find themselves eager to sit under it, even if the church doesn't have an official program that, that one particular likes, even if the, sing, the, the church sings the cool songs or not, whether or not they have the perfect ministry opportunity that aligns with your current hobbies or not. So friends, I pray that where the right preaching of the word of God is, you're able to locate that that is where a place that I want to invest in, and that is where I can jump on board. Non-Christians, you know, if you, you hear a lot about this preaching of the word, the reason why there's such a strong emphasis is because it's that word that gives life. That's why we want to prioritize these things. So if God speaks, right, and things come into existence, and then we see again in, in Ezekiel chapter 37 where Ezekiel is led by God to this valley of dry bones and God tells Ezekiel to speak and then dead bones comes to life, all right, this should be affected. This should be reflected in the way in which we structure the church. The, the emphasis here that we put on the preaching of the word. So, friends, you will probably notice that we preach the gospel, Lord willing, from every single service that God made man to be in a relationship with him. Perfect relationship. The problem is that man had rebelled against their God. They had rejected his authority and chosen in their sin to live unto themselves. And so, in effect, they became gods unto themselves. Now, that earned for themselves just condemnation because there is only one king and to take over his throne is treason. And so God sends Jesus Christ to bear the punishment that we deserved. He, in his grace and in his kindness and love, would rather see sinners come to repent of their sins and believe rather than face his judgment and go to hell. And so he sends Jesus Christ to take on your punishment if you would repent and believe. And so you see Jesus Christ die on the cross. He bears the wrath that people deserve. Three days later, he gets up from the dead, showing that payment has been made, and he then reigns. He shows himself. He proves himself 
uh, to be the Lord and the Savior. And he calls everybody to repent and believe. And that's what Peter believed in. This is the hope that he has, that is salvation in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness, where you don't have to pay for your own sins, but Christ forgives you because he already paid for your sins. You know, adoption into his family, where we know a right relationship with our very creator. We know justification, where we are declared righteous, even though we are sinners. There's so many different blessings that come from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, friends, if this is new to you and you were convicted, friends, repent of your sins and believe, and you will know that, the life-giving word, and you will taste that he is good. That, we've covered point number one, the pastor's passion, the glories of Christ. We've covered point number two, the pastor's purpose, shepherd the flock of God. And then point number three, we come to the pastor's pleasure, the pastor's pleasure. This is in verses two and three. Go ahead and look there. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So this is all of the how the pastor is to pastor, right? You have Peter coming alongside pastors. He's saying, look, shepherd the flock of God. He talks about how, and, he's, and then later on in verse 4, he's, you know, as we've already looked at, he talks about they're the driving, controlling passion. The logic is simple with this verse. He contrasts three things. What the pastor is not to do, and then what the pastor is to do. Not this, but instead do this. He says there first, the first thing, he says pastors should choose to pastor. Pastors should choose to pastor. Verse 2, you know, how do you shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight? He says, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Now, if you are a leader, now just think leader in general, no matter what sphere you lead in, you know how unhelpful it could be to be forced into leading when you know you are not ready to lead. Whether it be others pushing you, so pressures from outside, or even this internal sense of pressure, uh, maybe you have your own expectations for yourself, uh, so you're compelled by others or compelled by yourself, um, and you're not compelled by the glories of Jesus Christ. So Peter says here, look, the emphasis is that those who shepherd are to do it willingly. It's supposed to be a choice. Christians for a long time have talked about this willingness as an internal call to the ministry, an internal call to the ministry. So despite the challenges that can arise, despite the persecution that may come, here this internal call results when Christ and his cause compels you towards the ministry. And this has, this has been my experience. Um, around 23 years of age there, I felt internally called to the ministry. Uh, so for a number of years up until then, I had a desire to go into the film industry. So I had, got, I had gotten an agent to get into acting. I also did some production work, which I liked better. And then eventually enrolled into school for screenwriting. But one weekend changed my life. So what happened was like on a, uh, a Thursday, my mom said, Hey, Jeremy, I read this in my devotions. And she would do that regularly. Wonderful memory. She, she said, Jeremy, I read this in my devotions, 1 Timothy 4.13. I want you to read it. And I just ran out of the house. I didn't care what she said because I was busy to go somewhere. Um, but I lodged it into my mind. I thought, okay, you know, maybe I'll come back to it later. Friday night comes. My brother is teaching on some sort of lesson. And he, and he quotes this verse, 1 Timothy 4.13. I thought, hey, that's the verse that my mom mentioned to me. But I didn't really think anything of it. Saturday, my mom says, hey, Jeremy, did you read that verse? I said, no, I didn't read it. Saturday, uh, so Sunday, Jeremy, David's dad, preaches a sermon, and he uses that verse, and I think it was in on Sunday. Go ahead and turn to First Timothy 4.13. I think it might have been during the verse, or maybe I went home and finally decided to read it because the Lord had been bringing it to my mind uh, four days in a row. I finally opened the Bible, and I read the verse. First Timothy 4.13, Paul says to his young church planter, Timothy says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And for some reason, in that moment, I felt like God turned on the lights in my head and showed me what I was to do. I thought just as T Timothy was called or being called to preach the gospel to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, I thought maybe God was calling me to do the same. I felt internally compelled to do this. The glories of Christ I felt Christ was calling me to do this. And so with that internal call, I therefore desired to have my gifts affirmed, right? Because I knew that, you know, I might, I might feel, feel called internally to any sort of thing, but that doesn't mean that I'm actually called. 
Right? You can't be actually called if a church never calls you. So uh, there I felt the internal call, so then I sought to have my gifts affirmed. And so I went to David and Jeremy's den. I said, hey, I'd like to be discipled by you because I feel called into the ministry. And then, of course, all of my love started going away from film and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thought if there's any one thing that I could give the rest of my life to, it would be the preaching of the gospel and the shepherding of his people. And so I felt internally called. I wanted that internal call validated by the external call as churches, people around me would say, yeah, I think you have the basic gifts. I think you should continue studying. Uh, and this brings us to the next aspect. So that's, that's willingness here. The second aspect, Peter says, pastors should choose to pastor eagerly. Pastors should choose to pastor eagerly. Now, some of you guys might think like, okay, uh, uh, given the pastor is going to face more persecution on behalf of the flock, uh, given that he's going to face his sin in a unique way, given that he is going to have to wrestle with letting people down and, and being misunderstood, you might ask the question, like, why would anyone willingly and eagerly choose the responsibility of an elder when I can just be, maybe just seek to be misunderstood by my own family or maybe just take on the responsibility of shepherd, you know, two, three, four, five, six people as opposed to, I don't know, 70 or 700 or whatever. Well, friends, for the godly, they are compelled to shepherd sheep because the safety and security of the sheep is worth giving their lives for. For the godly, it's because the safety and security of others in Christ is worth giving your lives for. Now, I am not trying to champion the nobility of those in the pastorate. Those of you who are in leadership, who are leading families, shepherding children, you know this same desire. You embrace the same desire. Any parent who is ready to give of himself or herself for the safety and security of the children, knows this. The pastor is willing to take on the risk, all of the uncertainty, because of the love you have for your children and the trust you have in God. If you have children, you realize that your relationship with your children might look like the way that mine did with my mom all of those years. From me towards her, it was characterized by anger, bitterness, hatred, and I was in rebellion. I misunderstood my mom very much. I misunderstood her. And what is the parent supposed to do? Can the parent control the situation? No, they just have to entrust the child and themselves and their relationship ultimately to God and say, yes, I am willing to take on the risk. I'm willing to embrace the uncertainty because I know that God is good and his timing is best. Now, who's rejoicing over that in heaven? Is it not my mom who recognizes Perhaps even by, even by the end of her life. Of course, she knew that I had come to love her more than ever, even though for years and more than a decade had an intense anger and bitterness towards her. This maturity, this safety, this security of others, according to God's timing, is worth, friends, you giving your life for if you feel called to the ministry. I think this is why Peter contrasts, uh, the, the contrast he brings up here in this particular one, it works you have godly pastors who give themselves for the sheep like Christ gives himself to the sheep. And then you have the ungodly shepherds who pastor for shameful gain. This is a theme that Paul brings up in his letters that these are fake pastors or pastors who are greedy for their own gain. These are pastors who are similar to the wicked servants of Israel in the Old Testament who saw God's sheep as people to prey upon and take from, feed off of as opposed to sheep to give themselves to. So I have to say, friends, you know, in terms of, you know, is this worth it? Do, yes, pastors suffer, but, but friends, it is worth it. It is exciting to see Christ and his gospel take hold in your guys' lives and to change you for your glory. Where you all mature, you learn to put off sin and walk in the light of Christ, friends, and who gets the glory for that? I get the front row seat of seeing everybody Yes, are there risks? Is there uncertainty? Do I myself struggle with certain particular sins? Yes, absolutely. But friends, I get the front row seat of glory, of Christ himself, the, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, seeing how he works in all of your guys' lives as he chooses to bear fruit in his particular timing, even when it isn't mine. I might not see the fruit that will come even from my own children or from you, uh, I might not see that in my lifetime. So I might preach the gospel and then lay dead. And then at some point in time, God will bear fruit. That, friends, is very exciting. Not only that, though, but there, there's you guys who are discipling other people who are discipling other people. You might disciple your children. And then, you know, who knows? Two, three, four, five, five decades. There's going to be tons of Christians that have come from your ministry 
who then go on to do other glorious types of ministry of faithful gospel work. And that's super exciting for me. The glories of Christ must drive the pastor. Do they drive the pastor in discouragement? Yes. You know why? Because when I am discouraged, well, who gets the glory there? Christ gets the glory because I got to rely on Christ all the more. In my encouragement, Christ gets the glory all the more, right? Because he's, he's working in his people and I get to see that. And so uh, here, this is an eager thing. It should be an eager thing for the pastor, even in the midst of suffering, because Christ is my controlling passion. And hopefully for you who are uh, looking to go into the ministry, hopefully Christ would be your passion too, even amidst suffering. The third aspect, pastors have the opportunity to walk in the footsteps of Christ. Pastors have the opportunity to walk in the footsteps of Christ. He says there, how are we to shepherd the, the flock of God, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Of course, pastors who are unwilling and not eager, but who go into the ministry for their own wills, you know, they're, they're going to see Christ's sheep as people who stand in their way, as opposed to those that uh, they should suffer for. If Christ is not the controlling, of the, pa- uh, the controlling passion of the pastor, then it's the pastor's own will that's going to control them. And ironically, that pastor is going to domineer over his sheep and they're going to come to look more like the unjust masters of chapter 2 who abuse the sheep. But the pastor whose passion is Christ, they can relinquish the sheep to, to Christ. Uh, after the word of God has been preached and ministered to, the pastor can therefore relinquish the sheep to Christ because they are Christ's sheep after all. And so the pastor gets to trust in Christ, walking in his footsteps. I think that's what's implied here when Peter says being examples to the flock. Ultimately, the example goes back to Jesus Christ in chapter 2, where, where Christ himself is the example. He sets the pattern He lays out the footsteps that all Christians and especially pastors are to walk as we know here that Jesus in Hebrews 12 2, for the joy set before him endured the cross. Just as Christ has left us an example so the pastors will walk in the footsteps of Christ living as an example of Jesus to the sheep so that they might walk in his footsteps insofar as he follows Jesus Christ. To summarize the how of shepherding it ought to be the pastor's pleasure to serve the chief shepherd. It ought to be the pastor's pleasure that to serve the chief shepherd. Now, in terms of application, uh, as we apply this to our congregation, our church needs more elders. And some of you guys know, I spent time, a little bit of time last week with uh, my mentor, Mark Dever. He was in town. We got together. And in the course of talking, he asked me, you know, how many men do you think would be willing, ready to serve as elders over the next five years? And I was encouraged that there were more than a handful. There was more than a handful of men that I think are ready or will be elder quality over the next five years. And I was super encouraged by that. Because if you look at that, I mean, if we're a church of 70 and already we think that there is more than five who are or will be ready in the next five years, that's more than, uh, you know, around, let's say, seven, eight percent. But church, for right now, Know that this church needs more elders who want to see people secure in Christ and who want to do something about it. This church needs men who are compelled by the glories of Jesus Christ and who are willing to humbly step into positions of leadership and risk for the sake of God, for the sake of Christ, to see him exalted. We need men who are confident in the gospel, not afraid of failing Men who have their identity strongly rooted in Jesus Christ. Godly men who want to care for Christ's flock, feeding them God's word. So friends, church, let me ask you. Do you see men in the congregation now who, are, who you can submit yourself to? Men who you could call to be elders of this particular local church. Godly men who meet the qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus. Men who rightly handle the word of God who you could see yourself submitting to. Friends, please tell me. Okay, this is the official call. If you know that there are men in this congregation who you think are ready to shepherd this flock, who are men who are capable of teaching, men who live above reproach, please come talk to me. Brothers, let me challenge you specifically uh, as I pray that you want to be men who aspire to be elders. You know that Paul says that to aspire to be the office of an elder is a good thing. 
which also means that desiring that thing is a good too. And of course it would be. I mean, Christ calls all of his people to care for one another, to speak other people, to seek other people's spiritual good. First Thessalonians 5.14 says, All Christians are to take the initiative to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, to be patient. Right? So friends, if you feel called to be a pastor, let's work towards getting you ready. I know we've talked about this in the past. Let's work towards getting you ready. Uh, how I like to go about determining what I think is wise, you know, I'm going to look at attendance. Is the person who wants to be an elder actually happy at the church? Right? Are, are you going to embrace what we think the word prioritizes? Uh, you know, so how can one expect to teach and lead the sheep um, but who don't really care to show up? So I think it's kind of odd if somebody says, yeah, I have teaching gifts and I want to exercise them in the church, but hey, you know what? I don't particularly care to show up on Sunday evenings. Like that should be kind of one of the incongruencies that we say, okay, I don't think they're quite happy at the church. Uh, another thing, develop a care and love for others. Develop a care and love for others. I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, you know, people talk to me about how to care for particular sheep in the flock. Some people aren't using names. Some people aren't using names. It really just depends on the situation. Um, but I love it when people come up to me and say, hey, you know what? This is what I've been wrestling with. This is a question that somebody asked me, a theological question or pastoral question. Like, how should I respond to that? Uh, this is what I told them. What do you think of that? Like, that's super encouraging because I get to see this particular person growing in their love for other people. Like, that is really encouraging. It shows me that this person is developing a heart that actually seeks to care for other people. So there, just develop a care and love for other people. Another thing uh, that I think is wise is, you know, are you going to wield the word in personal conversations when no one is watching? Are you going to wield the word in personal conversations when no one else is watching? Right, because that tells me if you're going to do it for a title or so people can watch you, or are you really doing it because God is over you, his word is over you, and you think that's the most important thing to feed that particular person. And so when I meet up with folks, or Oscar does, or when other people in the congregation do, you know, sometimes we're saying, hey, how's this relationship going? Uh, you know, uh, are, how can we pray for you in this particular discipling relationship? And then we get in good conversations, and we get to hear how you guys are ministering to other people. And then, of course, as these things are going on, um, pastors are evaluating character. Do, does a person live their life above reproach? In other words, if they're going to preach one thing, if they're going to share and disciple a believer in one way, but then their lives aren't matching up to what they're preaching, then we say, okay, well, great that you're talking. Now let's work on personal character. And there we get back to the qualifications of the elder. And then after that, you know, we might have you guys wield the word in public. And this involves small groups. It involves leading service like AJ did today. It involves leading equipped classes. Uh, it involves preaching in the Sunday evening service and then even preaching here in the morning. Um, but the main, the main goal there in the preaching of the word is to see, or even the wielding of the word in personal conversation, to see, okay, well, what do other people think about the preaching? So on Sunday evening, I can just sit here, I could just stand here, and then you guys are going to tell me, oh, man, hearing... Tyler preached from Isaiah chapter 40, comfort, comfort, my people, behold your God, right? There's a number of people who said, man, that was really encouraging as Tyler was preaching that. And so I know, we all know like, oh, okay, so Tyler, God is using Tyler in a unique way or other preachers in a unique way to build up the body of Christ. And that also is super encouraging. Uh, and then if appropriate, you know, men who live their lives above reproach, who are capable of rightly handling the word of God, who are humble, who are teachable, you know, those men will go on to serve elders as the Lord appoints them, as the church appoints them. Uh, so those are my encouragements here. If the church or the church needs men who desire to serve at the pleasure of the chief shepherd. Once again, men who are willing to take risk and men, even in their failures, who say, yes, I'm a failure. I go to the gospel of Jesus Christ and I know Christ has forgiven me. Men who also are humble to hear criticism and say, okay, let's hear the criticism, confess where appropriate, try and reconcile where appropriate, and then just continue going on what you know is good and faithful and what Christ calls of us. This church needs those types of men. So let me encourage you, you know, let's continue to talk about these things. So to conclude here, the pastor's passion, we are to be controlled by the glories of Jesus Christ. What is the pastor's purpose? They are to shepherd the flock of God, particularly through spiritual oversight, particularly through preaching the word of God and then praying that the word would take root in people's lives. What is the pastor's pleasure? What a glorious thing to serve on behalf and at the service of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ himself. And so then you see the shepherd, 
being this person who ultimately is caring for the congregation, but leading the congregation to Christ himself. We have this expectation to receive the crown of glory when Christ returns and the wonderful experience of seeing God's people changed by his glory according to the spirit in sanctification, relying on his gracious aid. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you have indeed uh, called men to serve as elders and pastors of local churches. Lord, what a weighty task it is, as according to Hebrews chapter 13, every pastor must give account for the souls that you have put in the care of the pastors. We know too, Lord, that pastors are not to enter into the ministry quickly, unadvisedly, but Lord, uh, because we know that we will be judged on a stricter scale. But, Lord, in all of these things, Lord, we pray that we would cling to your grace, knowing that you give, not only do you call men, but you give gifts to men so that the church would be built up. Lord, we pray that you would be calling men from this church to serve in these types of positions. And, Lord, we ask, too, that even First Peter 5, verses 1 to 4, would affect how this congregation prioritizes the preached word of God, the ministry of the word. We pray, too, that it would help visitors. Uh, if they're looking for another church in the future, if they're called away from here, if they're members of the church, then to be called away, that they would know what to look for and what to prioritize and what to encourage. Uh, Lord, we pray that this church would be known as a church that submits ourselves to your word, trusting that your word will bring forth life as you appoint it, just as the rains do upon the field, so your word accomplishes everything that you determine it to accomplish. We thank you that your word brings life and that your word sanctifies. Your word secures our hearts and helps us trust for in your return. In your name we pray. Amen.